Good morning, Moore College. And um, there's been a little bit of technical difficulty, but it's good to be with you, I think, this morning. So I'm going to pray a short prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider the portion of your word in Daniel, we pray that uh, what you cause to be written, you would cause to be heard and in our lives to bring forth fruit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a story of uh, Kerry Packer, the media tycoon or media tyrant who was sitting at home on one occasion watching the television and he was watching the races and the guy who was the commentator was sitting there with an open neck shirt. And Kerry Packer rang direct and said, tell the guy to put on a tie. But after the ad break, he was still there with just an open neck shirt. So Kerry Packer rang again and said, tell the guy to put it on a tie or he will be calling camel races in the desert. And uh, after the ad break, there was still no tie. So uh, Kerry Packer rang for the third time and he was just about to pour out a whole lot of expletives when the secretary jumped in and said, Mr. Packer, Mr. Packer, I'm terribly sorry, but it has all been pre-recorded. That is a great reminder that even the most powerful man has certain things that are completely beyond his control. And uh, learning that things are not all in your control is one of the great first lessons for eternal life. And that's part of the reason we're looking at Daniel chapter 2, which uh, you have had read for you on a few uh, chapel services, and now we're going to try and think of the whole chapter. In this chapter 2 of Daniel, we see God the King bring an earthly king to complete helplessness. The king, as we know, was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon in the 7th century. He had recently conquered Jerusalem, and he had taken many captives to Babylon. One commentator says that Nebuchadnezzar had begun to make Babylon a wonder of the world, a city of learning, wisdom, and beauty. He conquered far and wide, he dispensed justice, he housed the fugitive, and he made the whole land happy. This was Nebuchadnezzar, philanthropist, benefactor, architect, and builder. No one matched him, no one challenged him. He was secure, popular, respected, and feared. And he worshipped the gods of Marduk and Nabu. Well, how is God possibly going to reach such a powerful man? And the answer is God is going to reach him any way he wants to. And he chooses to reach him through a dream, or we might say a nightmare. And I want to divide this chapter into two brief points. The first is that God is the only God who speaks. And second, that God is the only God who remains. First of all, God's the only God who speaks. We read in chapter 2, verse 1, that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams which caused him trouble, and so he couldn't sleep. We know, I guess, that dreams can be quite revealing. The Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, who specialized in dreams, suggested that people who have unrealistic ideas or too high an opinion of themselves or who make grandiose plans out of proportion to their real capabilities have dreams of flying or falling. The dream either compensates for the deficiencies of their personalities or it warns them of the dangers in their present course. 
well, there is an interesting insight on the subject of dreams. But this, of course, is a supernatural dream. And God is reaching a pagan king in order to humble him and is going to bring the nation to their senses, God willing. And of course, he's going to establish himself as the God of great glory. Well, we know that these dreams in Daniel chapter 2 terrify Nebuchadnezzar because he calls all the gurus together and he will not settle for just an interpretation. He's not going to tell them the dream and have them tell the interpretation. Because you can imagine that if he tells the dream, then the gurus can make up an interpretation that will flatter him and will cause them to keep their jobs. Just like the psychics on Talkback Radio, if you're ever unfortunate enough to hear them, uh, are basically going to tell you all good things so that they don't lose their jobs. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is too frightened to be told something uncertain. And he insists that the gurus, the magicians, the wise men tell him not only the interpretation, but the dream itself. And then he will know that they can be trusted and know that uh, they're talking the truth and that will be a relief to him. Well, we see therefore Nebuchadnezzar is completely out of his depth and the gurus are out of their depth as well. And they say to the king, nobody can do this. Nobody can tell you the dream and the interpretation. Nobody has ever asked this. It's humanly impossible. Only the gods could solve this. This is a beautiful example of God the king easily humbling the palace of a powerful king. Daniel, of course, also knows that it's humanly impossible and he's part of the team who will die if they cannot come up with the, the interpretation. And so he asks the king for some time and then he gathers his friends to pray and then God gives him the information. But when he fronts the king, he's very careful to say that nobody could have come up with this. But he says to the king, it is God who told me what I'm about to tell you. This great book of Daniel is about the king who is God ruling the kingdoms of the world. And here in chapter two, the contest is between revelation and reason. Our reason, of course, is capable of very great things. But unless God gives us revelation, we will never know what is crucial. We will never know the character of God. We will never know the fatherhood of God. We won't know the plan of salvation. We won't know the way of the Lord Jesus, and we won't know the future. The scriptures fill in this information for us, and they are therefore not only miraculous, but they are merciful. I hope you'll never forget this. I hope you'll never fall into the trap of thinking that because you're clever, that you have worked out yourself the plan of salvation. I hope that you'll never fall into the trap of thinking that it's your goodness which has caused God to take notice of you. But you'll remember that these things have come entirely to us by grace. I noticed this week that one of the swimmers in the Australian Olympic team, a girl actually who won a gold medal and whose father died last year, had said that uh, she just knew that her father was watching her and was with her all the way. And we wouldn't, of course, want to deny any of the grief which she has been through, but it is just wishful thinking, isn't it? And we need more than wishful thinking. We need God speaking. 
And therefore, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter whether you're the greatest king in the world or the smallest child in the world. The only answer to the question, how can I be sure, is that God speaks. And the only answer to the question, how can I be safe, is that Christ dies. And Nebuchadnezzar is learning, he's learning the hard way, that God is the only God who speaks and gives the information that is crucial. Now, the second thing is the only God who remains or stays or lasts or endures. The famous journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a communist before he became a Christian, said the ultimate disaster that can befall us is. I wonder how you would finish that sentence. The ultimate disaster that can befall us is. And Muggeridge said to feel ourselves to be at home here on earth. And that is so true, isn't it? To every person, God has given enough information to be humble, to realize that we're here very briefly and that we're tiny dots in the cosmos. And therefore, our pride is a form of insanity, whether you're a human or whether you're a king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of a huge statue. There's a gold head, there's a silver chest, bronze belly, iron legs, feet made of iron and clay. It's a very imposing statue, but unfortunately, a rock comes flying through and strikes the statue, and all the sections of the statue become chaff. This rock, whatever it is, suddenly becomes a mountain. And I don't think you need more than an IQ of about five to work out that that is a fairly sobering dream. And Daniel, now that he's been told the dream, could easily have interpreted in a very flattering way. He could have said to the king, oh, king, we love you. You're wonderful. You're the head of gold. And I suspect that this rock that comes flying is going to attack your enemies and make sure that you live happily forever and ever. But he doesn't. He says to okay, you're the gold head. And after you is going to come another king, and after you will come another king. And then there will be another kingdom, and you're just one of a sequence. But soon a kingdom, says the dream, says the interpretation, soon a kingdom will come, which will never be destroyed. Can I just uh, step to the side of this uh, sermon and say that you are probably aware that the traditional view is that these sections of the statue represent Babylon, Persia, Greece and Rome. Makes good sense to me because we're told that the rock that rises into greatness appears at the time of the Romans. You all may also know that there are some people who say that uh, these predictions are too clever to be the 6th century BC and they must be the 2nd century BC. Well, you have to work out for yourself whether you think the God of the Bible is clever enough to tell the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. We, we read in Isaiah 46 that one of the distinctive marks of God is that he can tell the end from the beginning. The other thing, of course, is that built into this dream, this interpretation, is in verses 44 and following the prediction of a powerful and permanent kingdom not made with human hands. In other words, even if you insist on a second century uh, view of Daniel, 
there is some predictive accuracy here. And I can't therefore work out why we should dismiss the early predictions and hold on to the later prediction. And I've never been able to understand how Daniel is meant to comfort believers in the second century by telling stories of the sixth century BC, which some people then go on to say are just legends. As if we would say to people who are going through a very difficult time, I'm going to tell you some stories now. They didn't really happen, but I hope they comfort you anyway. I just don't understand that at all. Well, there are two details that Nebuchadnezzar should notice. One is that he's part of a crowd who will soon be chaff. Second, there is a kingdom that is forever, and he must work out what that is all about. Unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar is not the slightest bit interested in either of those bits of information. He only wants to focus on the fact that he is the head of gold. He knows that Daniel speaks the truth. He knows that Daniel deserves to be rewarded and he rewards him with huge influence, but he is only listening to what he wants to hear. How relevant that is. Well, my friends, as we finish this morning, how do we listen to Daniel chapter two properly? We remind ourselves, I suppose, that pride is a killer and that God must bring all rival kingdoms down. And he must also bring us to our senses if ever we're to come to the Saviour. Dale Ralph Davis tells a wonderful story in his commentary on Daniel during the time of Julian the Emperor in the fourth century when a non-Christian mocked a Christian. Uh, Julian the emperor was dying and the non-Christian said to the Christian, well, where is your carpenter's son now? And the Christian replied to the non-Christian like this. He said, the maker of the world, who you call the carpenter's son, is right now making a coffin for your emperor. And that is a great reminder that the king of kings completely rules over all. And it is Jesus, we remind ourselves, whose life supplies the information that we desperately need because he comes into the world with grace and truth. There is only one king who will help you to know the truth. It is Jesus who does not exalt himself, but humbles himself even to the cross. And so there is an answer to our sin, our sins of pride and all the other sins. There is an answer to our fears and to our mortality and to our judgment to come. There's only one God. There's only one King who really loves us. And it is Jesus whose resurrection proves that there is a kingdom that is forever. There is a King of Kings on the throne of heaven. There is only one King who really lasts. And we are hugely privileged to be invited by grace to be part of his kingdom. Without him, people are finished. And with him, people are safe forever. And that, my dear friends, is the business that we are in. Let's pray together. Gracious God, in the face of a kingdom, temporary, foolish, we're so thankful for our King, the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, humble, gracious, merciful, powerful. We thank you for the huge privilege of being drawn into the kingdom and pray that you would help us not only to be grateful, but to play a part in the advance of the kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name.
Amen.